We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. In his memoir, Will Smith opens up about what he describes and what he calls the defining moment of of his life. 
Um, it goes all the way back to his childhood, actually. Uh, he was nine years old when it happened. And one night, he stood in the family living room, and he watched as his father beat his mother. Um, he was the oldest of the kids, and the reason he says it became the defining moment of his life is because his younger brother, who was standing behind him watching the same thing, walked past him and stepped in between his mom and his dad to defend his mom. And Will Smith did nothing to help. And he says that this is actually the moment he's never stopped living in response to. Uh, let me just read a quote for you. He says, everything that I've done since then, the awards and accolades, the spotlights and the attention, the characters and the laughs, what you have, what you have come to understand as Will Smith, the alien annihilating MC, the bigger-than-life movie star, is largely a construction, a carefully crafted and honed character designed to protect myself to hide myself from the world, to hide the coward. He says, so I decided to be funny. I wanted to please and placate my dad because as long as he was laughing and smiling, I believed we would be safe. I was the entertainer in the family and I wanted to keep everything light and fun and joyful. Uh, there are some moments in life that are so significant that they, they sear themselves into our memories. And we never forget them. There's some moments in life that are so powerful that they actually shape us for the rest of our lives. That's not just true for Will Smith, but it's true for you and me. And today we actually come to that event, that defining moment for the ancient Israelite. It's what Exodus calls the Passover. It was an event that they would never forget, and it actually came to shape their collective life together for generations. Now, if you're new, uh, today is your first time. We are so, let me just welcome you. So glad you're here. Uh, and maybe you're new to Christianity. Maybe you're new to the Bible, not very familiar with the Bible. So let me just catch you up on where we are in the story of Exodus. We've been walking through this book. Uh, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. And it tells the story of Israel. Israel was living as an oppressed people. They were enslaved in Egypt. They were living under the reign of Pharaoh. And God looks down and he sees their misery and he hears their cries. And he says, I've got to do something about this. And so he calls a man named Moses. And he says, Moses, I'm going to use you to set my people free. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, look, God's not okay with what's happening here. And you need to let these people go. And Pharaoh much like any ruler today, people do not give up their power easily. And Pharaoh says, I don't, I don't think so. He's resistant. And so what God does in response is he sends 10 plagues. They take place between Exodus chapter 7 and Exodus chapter 12. And they are six chapters, six chapters of intense judgment. Six chapters of intense suffering. Ten plagues in all. Last week we looked at the first nine plagues and we asked the why question. Why does God send the plagues? And we said the answer to that is God is trying to show Pharaoh and you and me that he alone is Lord. 
He alone is God. There is no other God. There is no one like him. Um, And I promised last week that we would actually look at the last plague this week, and we would answer the how question. How, how, how in the world could a good God allow something like this to happen, what we just read about? Let me tell you, this last plague, the death of the firstborn, it makes all the other plagues look like child's play. Someone said to me after the service a couple weeks ago, you know, I'm really enjoying the, the book Exodus, but why is there so much death? Why so much judgment? You see, Exodus, it is a hopeful story. It's a hopeful story because God comes to the aid of the oppressed, but it is a troubling story. In fact, I think the last verse we read today, I intentionally put this in there, I think it's one of the most troubling verses in all the Bible. Let me read it for you again. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Jesus in, in, in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Does that verse unsettle you? I've, you know, I've never heard someone say, uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 30 is my favorite verse in the Bible. I've memorized that, say that to myself every morning, buried it deep in my heart. That is a troubling verse. What do we do with this passage? What do we do? I'll tell you what most of us do. We, we, we kind of pretend like passages like this aren't there. And if, you, if that is how you treat the Bible, you will eventually walk away from it. You will eventually walk away from God because there will be parts you don't know what to do with. We've got to wrestle with passages like this. What does this passage mean? And let me ask it more personally. What does it mean for you and me? How does it actually apply to our lives? I want to look at this passage under two headings today. Number one, the problem of judgment. And number two, the hope of the Lamb. The problem of judgment and the hope of the Lamb. So first, let's talk about uh, the problem of judgment. Uh, You don't have to live long in the Bay Area to realize that people have a major problem with judgment. We We have a major problem with the notion of a God of judgment. And maybe you're here today and you are exploring Christianity and you say, you know what, this is this is where I really get hang up, hung up. This is why I don't know if I could actually ever believe this stuff because of passages like this. And I, I'm, I'm drawn to the idea that there is some sort of God in the universe who, who calls us to love and to tolerance and to acceptance. But, but this whole God of a judgment thing, that's, I'm getting off that train. We have a problem with judgment. Uh, you, you see this a lot at funerals. Um, I have even heard uh, totally irreligious people, people who would say, I don't really believe in a God, I don't believe in an afterlife, at funerals say things like, well, they're in a better place now. Um, You see it in our city. Here's something really interesting. I learned this week, lived here for almost 20 years, Oakland has a city motto. I don't know if you know this. We have an official motto. You know what our motto is? It is love life. Love life. Love is the guiding principle of our city. If you go to the website, uh, it will say things. It talks about, uh, where it talks about this motto, it talks about unity and family and connection and community 
and finding common ground amidst our differences and spreading love. Now, please hear me. All of those things are important. All of those things are important to the flourishing of society. They are all important. I'm not saying that love is not important. What I'm saying is love is cool and judgment is not. Love is in and judgment is not. We have a big problem with judgment. So we come to passages like this in Exodus 12, the Passover, and we think, how could anybody ever believe in a God like this? A God who seems so full of wrath and anger. A God who is striking people down. A God who sweeps through Egypt with such judgment, let me read it for you again, that there is loud wailing because there's not a single house without someone dead. Imagine if we woke up tomorrow morning and in every house in Oakland, someone was dead. See, we struggle with judgment. We have a problem with judgment, but there is a problem within the problem. And the problem within the problem is this. You cannot have a God of love without a God of judgment. Let me say this again. You cannot have a God of love without a God of judgment. And the story of Exodus helps us see this. We read this story as Americans. But what if you read it as an Israelite? What if you had been oppressed and your people had been oppressed for hundreds of years? What if your firstborn had been slaughtered by Pharaoh all the way back in Exodus chapter 1 when he said, kill all the firstborn males? What if you had lived under back-breaking cruelty and violence and denigration of your personhood at the hands of the Egyptians. See, no one in Israel had a problem with God's justice. They did not think like most Americans do. They did not think, I want a God of love, but not a God of judgment. They thought the only way God can be a God of love is if he's going to bring judgment on these people. Um, it is Black History Month. And one of the things we want to do as a church throughout this month is celebrate uh, black heroes of the church. And one of those heroes is Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman was a predecessor of Dr. King. Uh, he was clearly a sharp dresser, way sharper than me. Uh, he's a sharp dresser. He was uh, a pastor. He was a civil rights activist. Um, in 1947, he gave a lecture at Harvard University. Uh, this was during the pre-civil rights area, and this is what he said in this lecture. He said, can you imagine a slave saying, I and all my children and all my grandchildren are consigned to live lives, to, are consigned to lives of endless brutality and grinding poverty. Can you imagine saying that there is no judgment day in which any wrongdoing will ever be put to right? Now, what is he saying? He is saying, if God is not going to judge evil, what hope is there for the slave? If, if God, if, if evil is not going to be held to account, what hope is there for the oppressed, for victims of violence and abuse? I mean, let's just bring it up to today. What hope is there for our city? 
We're, people in this city are crying out for justice. You see, the black church understood something that I think many churches today do not, which is you cannot have a God of love without a God of judgment, and that is why they sang songs about judgment. Yeah, they sang songs about judgment. I'll give you one. It's called Judgment Day. Here's how it went. Judgment, judgment. Judgment Day is rolling around. Judgment, judgment. Oh, how I love to go. Oh, we have never sung a song like that in this church. You ever sung a song like that? You probably, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't invite your friends if we were singing songs like that in this church. They, why do, we don't like songs like that. And one of the questions we have to ask is, why do we have such an aversion to judgment when they loved it? Why do we struggle with judgment passages like Exodus chapter 12? And I think the reason why is because most of us in this room, not all of us, but most of us in this room have never suffered like they did. We've never suffered like these ancient Israelites did. To accept that God is a lover but not a judge, that is something you can only do if you've never really suffered. It's a luxury belief. It's a belief that only the most privileged and the most protected can afford. But you ask anyone, you ask anyone, ask anyone who has endured real injustice, real violence, real suffering. Ask them how they feel about their victimizers escaping judgment. We need a God who gets angry. We need a God who gets angry at evil and who's going to do something about it. When my oldest child started middle school, those are some rough years, started middle school, first, first week in sixth grade, uh, he got punched by an older student. Now, how do you think I responded to that? The next day, I showed up right before school ended. And I waited outside the fence, kind of hid behind this little tree. And when this kid came out, I grabbed him and I said, if you ever no, I didn't do that. I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. Got you, though. Some of you are like, he's capable of that. I can, I can feel, feel some anger in this man. He's not safe. Guys, I'm not trying to go to jail. I'm not trying to lose my job. I'm a pastor. But I did show up. I did show up at the principal's office the day it happened, and I said, what are we going to do about this? Because this is not Okay. I was angry. I was furious. You know why? Because I loved my son. And God is the same way. When God sees violence and injustice done to any of his creatures, he gets very, very angry. He's not neutral, and you don't want him to be. That kind of God cannot help you. He can't help the city. He can't help people who are really hurting and really crying out. So let me just summarize where we are. Okay, let's summarize this. First, the problem of judgment. What is the problem of judgment? The average person says, I don't like this idea of a God of judgment. I do like the idea of a God of love. But there's a problem within the problem. The problem within the problem is that you cannot have a God of love without a God of judgment. And that leads to a problem 
with the problem within the problem. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, this is way too complicated for church. It is not complicated. Let me make it very simple for you. Very, very simple. Who is being threatened by God's judgment in this passage? Who's being threatened? Who is in trouble when God says he is going to pass through and bring death? You know who's in trouble? Everyone. Everyone, not just the Egyptians, but the Israelites as well. God says, don't go outside. And you see, in the first nine plagues, the Israelites were protected. This is so interesting. The first nine, they are protected. When God sends the plague to kill the livestock, the Israelites' livestock is not killed. When God sends the plague of hail, it only falls on the Egyptians. When God sends the, la- the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, it only falls on Egypt. Israel is in Goshen. They're watching as darkness shrouds Egypt. If you're an Israelite, what are you thinking after those first nine plagues? You're thinking, we're good. We're safe. We don't have to, to worry about God's judgment. And, and this is, just pause here for a moment. This is, it is such a temptation for religious people to think like this. We draw these boundaries between who is in and who is out. And we say, well, these are the good people and those are the bad people. You know, we're safe and they're not. We're moral and they're not. They're not. But here, friends, no one is safe. In in the first nine plagues, only the Egyptians are threatened. In the tenth plague, everyone is threatened. No one is excluded from judgment. You know why? Because no one is good. No one is moral enough. No one is righteous enough. In every single house, you had either an Egyptian or an Israelite. That meant that in every single house, you had people. And you know what the Bible says about people? It says that God made every single person in his image, that they are stamped with dignity and worth and beauty. And at the same time, we are broken and infiltrated by evil and sin. Every single person. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was a a Russian uh, author. Um, He endured great oppression under Stalin. And listen to what he says. He says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it, were necessarily only, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. He, he is saying there's a line that runs down every single human being that within each of us is incredible good and incredible evil. And that's the problem with, with the problem within the problem. If there is no judgment, let me make this very simple for you. If there is no judgment, you cannot have a God of love. And therefore, what hope is there for the oppressed? But if there is judgment, what hope is there for you and me? Because evil's not just out there. It's in every single one of us, including the preacher who is preaching this morning. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. 
Do you see the problem within the problem with the problem? I mean, how could any of us, we need a God of judgment in order to have a God of love, but if there is a God of judgment, how could any of us ever withstand? And that actually brings us to the second point, which is the hope of the Lamb. The hope of the Lamb. God says to Moses, listen, I want you to go to uh, Israel and I want you to say, listen, each family needs to take a lamb, a pure, perfect spotless lamb without blemish, without defect. Uh, Each family needs to get one and they need to sacrifice it and they need to uh, cook it and eat it. And then they need to take the blood from this lamb and paint the doorposts around their houses. And when I, God says, when I pass through Egypt to strike down the firstborn of the Egyptians, um, I'll see the blood and I'll pass over their houses. And that's why it's called the Passover lamb. God says, I'm gonna pass over, my judgment will pass over. He calls it the Passover meal. God's judgment will pass over them. This is so important. Not because they are the good people. Not because they are Israelites. Not because they go to church. But why? Because of the blood of the lamb. That's what God says in verse 13. He says, when I see the blood. Now, many people hear this and they look at Christianity and they say, you know, I don't like all this stuff about blood and slaughter. I mean, we we were singing a song earlier. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Some of you were like, "What, what is this? Why are we singing about blood? I don't get it. It makes God seem so primitive. Uh, Some of you might remember this movie, Prince of Egypt. Uh, it is, it's about the story of the Exodus. And when Steven Spielberg uh, made this movie, the original script uh, read, uh, had God saying, when I see the mark upon the doorframe. Uh, however, they had actually hired religious leaders to help them with this movie because they wanted it to be accurate. They wanted it to get it right. And these religious leaders objected to that. They said, no, you can't just say, you can't just have God saying, when I see the mark, because that's not what God says. God, God is not saying, you know, X marks the spot, like here's the secret signal and the way that I'll know. God doesn't say, when I see the mark, he says in verse 13, when I see the blood. And these religious leaders were saying, that's, this is how it needs to read. When I see the blood. And we say, well, why the blood? And why the lamb? And what is going on here? I mean, is God saying, Kill an animal and I'll forgive you? (laughs) No, God is saying, here's what God is saying. God is saying, you need a substitute. You need a substitute. The lamb was a substitute. In every single house, you had either a dead lamb or a dead son. And for the Israelites, the lamb was their substitute. It got what they deserved. They lived because it died. And you see this theme of a substitute lamb just developed throughout the Bible. It first shows up in Genesis 22 where God provided a lamb for Abraham so that Isaac could live. God provided one lamb for the sins of one person. And you're kind of left saying, well, what about 
What about other people? Well, then you come to Exodus chapter 12. And what does God do? God provides a lamb for each household. You see that in the instructions? It's for each household at Passover. So we go from one lamb for the sins of one person to one lamb for the sins of one family. Well, then you get to Leviticus 16. And God provides a lamb for the Day of Atonement. When the high priest goes into the temple and he makes a sacrifice for all of Israel. And so you have one lamb for the sins of one nation. And then you fast forward to the New Testament. And wonder of all wonders, you know what happens? God provides one lamb for the sins of the whole world. John the Baptist looks at Jesus. He says, behold, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, the night before his death, he sits down with his disciples at the Passover meal with them. You always had three things at the Passover meal. You had the bread, you had the cup, and you had the lamb. The bread was there, and the cup was there, but there was no lamb there. There was no lamb on the table. You know why there was no lamb on the table? Because the lamb was at the table. He was the host of the table. Jesus Christ, this is what Exodus 12 is setting you and I up for. Jesus Christ is the perfect spotless lamb. And on the cross, he got what we deserved. He died so that we could live. And because of him, God's judgment now passes over you. And you are safe. We are safe not because of who we are or what we do. We are safe because of his blood. There's a story uh, that during World War II, um, Allied paramedics would go out onto the battlefields after these battles had taken place. And there were all these wounded soldiers in the middle of the field. And they would go out um, to try and save both Allied and Nazi soldiers. And they often had to do blood transfusions uh, out on the battlefield with with donated blood. Uh, One of these groups of paramedics started doing an interesting thing. They would save the blood from uh, Jewish soldiers, Jewish donors, for the wounded Nazi soldiers. They would would talk to these German soldiers and they say, look, you're going to die. You're going to die right here on this field unless you're willing to take the blood of this Jewish soldier. And some of them said yes, but others said no. They they, they said they'd rather die than humble themselves to receive the life-giving blood of a Jew. That is the choice that God puts in front of every single person in this room this morning. Will you receive the blood? Not of a Jewish soldier, but of a Jewish savior. Because what the gospel says is, is that you cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself. You cannot make yourself right with God. No matter how hard you try. No matter how moral you are. You need a substitute. And the immediate response that I think lots of people have is, well, well, why? 
I mean, why do we need a substitute? Why, why did Jesus have to die? Why, why could God not just kind of like snap his fingers and say, I'm going to just forgive? Why couldn't he just do it that way? And here's the answer. All love requires substitutionary sacrifice. What I mean by that is in order to really love someone, it always entails sacrifice. Would you think about your best friendships, your deepest friendships? Why are those your best friendships? Why are they your deepest friendships? Because those are people that have been willing to say, I will make sacrifices for you. And they're people to which you've been able to say, well, I'll make sacrifices for you. I'll serve you even when it's not convenient for me. I mean, I won't just drive you to the Oakland airport. I'll, I'll, I'll take you to SFO. That is real <laughs> sacrifice right there. Huh? Think about the best marriages. You know what the best marriages are? Marriage is not easy. It is not easy. But it is also not complicated. The best marriages are ones where you have two people who are willing to say to one another, I am going, and I'm willing, I'm willing to die to myself in order to love you and to serve you. I'm willing to take my wants and my wishes and my preferences and make them subservient to yours. Now, if only one person does that, that's how, that's how a marriage goes bad. That's how a marriage becomes exploitative. If you're doing that in your relationship with your spouse, you need to stop. The best marriages are ones where you have two people who are saying, I'm willing to lay my life down for you. Think about parenting. Think about parenting. You know, there is, man, you know what parenting is? Years and years of sacrifice. The first couple years, they can, they can do nothing for themselves. You do everything for them. They, they can't even say thank you. So much sacrifice involved in parenting. You sacrifice sleep. They don't even knock on your door to ask if they can come in at 2 a.m. They just walk in. You sacrifice money. Ch- children are very expensive. I know this. They're very expensive. And then they grow older, and you know what happens? You, you start, they take over your, your, your Netflix queue, and you get in the car, and they, they're taking over your radio. You can't even watch what you want to watch anymore. You can't even listen to what you want to listen to anymore. There is so much sacrifice. All love requires sacrifice. Now, if that is true for us, then how much more true is it for God? If we have to sacrifice in order to love another person, does it not make sense that God, who is far more loving than us, would have to make substitutionary sacrifice in order to love us? And this gives us the solution to all of the problems of judgment we've talked about this morning. The first problem is we don't like judgment. But the problem within the problem is you cannot have a God of love without a God of judgment. But the problem with the problem within the problem is how could we ever survive God's judgment if we know ourselves at all? But praise be to God that he has given us the solution. He has provided for us 
the perfect substitute. The, the, the pure, spotless, without blemish or defect, Lamb of God. Jesus Christ. And then somebody, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. In Jesus Christ, God came into this world not just to bring judgment, but to bear it. And because of that, he can be both a God of justice and a God of love. In a world where those two things seemingly do not go together, what we find on the cross is that God's justice and his mercy kiss. It is good news for the oppressed that God is justice. And it is good news for the oppressor that God is love. Jesus' forgiveness is one that upholds justice for every wrong and mercy for every wrongdoer. And that is good news for the whole world. And that is good news that is meant to define and shape the rest of our lives. It is meant to be the defining event, the defining reality that shapes the rest of our lives. This Passover meal in Exodus chapter 12 God tells Israel that they're to celebrate it for generations and generations and generations. It was, it was their defining event that shaped the rest of their lives. And that is what this table is meant to be for us. It is, friends, this table is the new Passover meal where our perfect substitute gave his life for us. He died so that we could live and now God's judgment passes over us and that ought to shape and change and form and frame every part of our lives. How so? Let me give you just three quick ways and then we're done. This is very brief. First, this meal means that we work for justice. Christians ought to be people who are deeply concerned about justice. A God of just judgment is the basis for all fight against injustice. Because God is outraged at injustice, we ought to be outraged. Because God is outraged at evil, we ought to be outraged. We ought to be people who fight against injustice and oppression and violence and who fight for the marginalized and the vulnerable and the poor. As Christians, we have the best story, friends. You know what our story is? God is making all things new. God is at work pushing back the darkness working against injustice. And we are to be people who join him in that, people who work for justice. But second, it means that we are people who wait for justice. There is a big distinction between playing a part by working for justice as people who worship a just God and trying to take justice into our own hands. There's a big difference between those things. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And this table reminds us that though it may seem delayed, a day is coming where God is going to judge evil and he is going to bring it to an end. And if he doesn't do it now, he will do it then. And this gives you a whole new attitude towards people who wrong you and hurt you. Judgment is not yours. Judgment is God's. And it gives you a whole new hope when you see evil go unchecked today because you know that it will not go unchecked in the end. And so we wait for justice. 
And we work for justice, but here's last. We walk in love. This table means that you can live with the assurance that God really, really does love you. And you may have walked through those doors this morning not having any assurance of that. Maybe you've never known it. But you can walk out those doors knowing it. You can walk out those doors with a deep insurance. Listen to some of these verses. Romans 5, 9 says that we are justified by Christ's blood. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. What are all these verses saying? They're saying no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God sees you as perfect as he sees Jesus. No matter how blemished or spotted your life is, God looks at you and he sees you as unblemished. He sees you without defect. He sees you as pure and spotless, which means that he delights in you to the same degree that he delights in Jesus. And he rejoices in you to the same degree that he rejoices in Jesus. And he loves you to the same degree that he loves Jesus. And he wants you to know that love. And he wants it to become the defining event of your life. The thing that shapes you more than anything else. But the truest thing about you is that God loves you. And and that is why he draws us into this room week after week and to this table where he proclaims that love to us. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this table and for the perfect substitute that we find at it. God, today we bring to you all of our imperfections all of our blemishes, all of the ways that we fall short, all of the ways we're not the people you've made us to be, we're not the people we want to be. We bring to you all of our shame, all of our guilt, because God, we, if we know ourselves, we know that we need a substitute, but the good news of this table is that you have given us one, and in him we are declared righteous, and clean, and perfect, and holy, and beautiful in your sight. Would you help us to believe these things as we eat and drink this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.